All right, good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We're going to be starting in verse 18. If you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 967. 967, Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 18 is where we're going to be going today. And so, yeah, we're back in the book of Luke. We took a fairly extended break to focus on some vision casting, but we've been walking through the book of Luke. It's almost been two years now when we originally started the book of Luke, and we're uh, around halfway through, a little bit over halfway through at this point. So we may be here for a little while longer. Uh, And really, our favorite way to preach and to teach the Bible is to walk through whole books of the Bible, because this is the best way we learn the original inspired author's intent. It's the best way for us to learn the context of what's going on in the, in the Bible. It's the, it's the best way for us to get to know the author really, really well. And it forces us to go through and wrestle with difficult passages that we might be tempted to skip over if we were just doing topical sermons all the time. And so I love preaching through whole books of the Bible. I think it's the best way for us to learn how to read the Bible also. And so Luke wrote this letter or this book to his friend Theophilus. We know that. We don't know a whole lot about Theophilus. Uh, We think that Theophilus might have been a government official just by the way that Luke addresses him. But we do know quite a bit about Luke. Luke was a Gentile, which means he was not a Jew. He was not one of the original 12 apostles or disciples. But he did spend a whole lot of time with the apostle Paul. He was a missionary with Paul, went on a bunch of missionary journeys with him. He wrote the book of Luke, and he also wrote the sequel to Luke, which is the book of Acts, which takes up a majority of the New Testament. He actually wrote more words than the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He wrote a lot. We know that he was a historian. He was a physician. He loved details. There's details in the Gospel of Luke that you won't find in any other of the Gospels. And we find out in the first chapter of Luke why he was so detailed. He explains that the purpose of him writing this Gospel letter was so that he would give an, a, an orderly account, and verse says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And so understand this. Luke is not writing to some unbelieving skeptics. He's writing to believers who are going through persecution and hard times, and they need a a rock-solid certainty about what they've been taught about Jesus. And so Luke wants to make sure that we understand that Jesus is not simply a good leader, that Jesus is not simply a great teacher, he's not simply uh, a, a... a moral character that we ought to follow. He's not just a, uh, a good role model. God in the flesh came from heaven on a rescue mission to save sinners like you and me. And so he focuses on the authority of Jesus. That's a major theme throughout the book of Luke. He talks about the authority of Jesus' teaching. He doesn't teach like the rest of the scribes and the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders of that day, when they taught, they would usually quote other people. Jesus says, no, this is how it is. You've heard it said this way. Let me teach you what that really means. 
He highlights the authority of Jesus to have the power to heal, to raise the dead, to command the wind and the, the waves, to be able to walk on water, fed thousands with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. Highlights the authority that Jesus had to cast out demons and to even forgive sins. And of course, the religious leaders of the day, they looked at Jesus as a threat. They saw Jesus, they loved their own power, their own popularity, and they looked at Jesus as their rival. And Jesus looked at them as these hypocrites who were really leading his people astray. And so there's this constant tension that is building in the Gospel of Luke between the religious leaders and Jesus. And Jesus pretty much preached one main message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he's saying that, look, the king has come to introduce his kingdom, and so you need to turn away from your, your pointless and your worthless idols and turn back to God, your true king. That's a major theme throughout the book of Luke. Luke mentions the kingdom of God 32 times in the gospel. In fact, 16 out of the 24 chapters mentions the kingdom of God. It's a major theme. And in today's passage, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is teaching his disciples something of the nature of the kingdom of God. And so let me define, what are we talking about? When we say the kingdom of God, you, you may also see it in some of the Gospels as the kingdom of heaven. That's synonymous. The kingdom of God is simply this. It's, it's wherever God rules and reigns. The kingdom of God is wherever God rules and reigns. If you're taking notes, I would write that down. In a sense, the kingdom of God is the story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God's kingdom breaking forth. God creates humans in his image and commands them to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, cover the earth as my representatives. And he says, have dominion over the whole earth. And so, in other words, be my, my viceroys. Represent me and my kingdom in the world. And so when Adam and Eve fell, when, when they sinned, when they took that fruit and disobeyed God, they were rejecting that role. They said, look, I don't want to just represent the king. I want to be the king. That's exactly what Satan had tempt them, tempted them with. He said, you can be like God. And so when they did that, when they rejected their role, when they committed treason, they were kicked out of the kingdom and everything was corrupted because of that. And so the rest of the Bible then is about God's plan to redeem his chosen people and bring them back into his kingdom. That's the story of the Bible, right? It's about God's kingdom of light breaking into the kingdom of darkness. God tells Abraham, look, one day your family will be a huge nation, a huge kingdom. And sure enough, his family would grow into the nation of Israel. God gives Israel, his chosen people, the law, which is basically God saying, this is how the people of my kingdom ought to live and represent me in the world. Later on, he would tell King David that he's a king of Israel. He says, your throne will one day be an everlasting throne. He was implying that one day God would send a savior to be the king of kings and his kingdom would last forever. The prophets would echo that same message. And when Jesus is born, he's called Emmanuel, God with us, and they worship him. And of course, Jesus preaches, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so when Jesus came the first time, it was to inaugurate his kingdom. And when he comes back, 
it will be to consummate his kingdom. And so we live in this weird space between the already and the not yet, that the kingdom has come, but not fully come. And so in this passage today, Jesus pauses his ministry to share two parables with his disciples. And he's instructing them about the nature of his kingdom. So why does he do that? Why is this? Okay, what's the purpose behind this? And to figure that out, you always have to look at the context. Context is always king. And so what's the immediate context here? Look at verse 18. And you notice he says, therefore. So you ask, okay, what's the therefore, therefore? So you look back. The immediate context is that Jesus has just miraculously healed this woman who's had this disabling spirit, been tormenting her for like 18 years. So Jesus heals this woman, and the religious leaders that see this miracle, they go bananas. They they reject it. They, They get extremely mad at Jesus because he has just healed this woman on the Sabbath, the Sabbath day which was against their rules. You don't do anything on the Sabbath day, but here's Jesus healing this woman on the Sabbath day. And so they go nuts. They're outraged at Jesus. And so in response to that, Jesus pulls his disciples together and says, let me tell you these two parables. And so what he's trying to do here is he's trying to encourage them. He's saying, look, when you see people reject my message, when you see this, the religious leaders, they, they've just seen me do this amazing miracle, but they, they don't believe my message. They don't believe who I am. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't be discouraged how people respond to my message. I think for us, that is a, that's a lesson we still need to hear very much today. We live in a culture which is increasingly becoming more and more hostile to the claims of the gospel. We live in a culture that is becoming increasingly perturbed that we still believe that the Bible is true. And so this message of Jesus encouraging his disciples not to be discouraged when they are rejected is something we still need to hear today. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this passage. Father, thank you for your word. And I plead with you right now that you would help us to understand these parables, that we would see the significance of them in our own lives and be able to apply them in a very practical way as we leave this place. I pray that they would change our hearts, that you would melt away all the fear that we have of other people rejecting us and that you would instill in us a courage that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save. Help us believe that with everything in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, picking up in verse 18. Again, we're in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. 
And so both of these parables are about something small become, becoming something great. A mustard seed, it's only maybe one to two millimeters in diameter, and yet it can grow to be a plant that's like nine feet tall, big enough that birds can literally put their nest in. Leaven or yeast only takes a pinch to make a whole loaf of bread rise, right? In fact, and here he says it took and hid, a, hid the leaven in three measures of flour. Three measures is a, about a bushel, or bushel of, of flour. It's enough to make like 42 loaves. And his point is it's comprehensive. Yeast doesn't stop working until all the dough has been leavened. And so a mustard seed, yeast, they look insignificant, but in fact, they're very significant. They look practically invisible. They work slowly, secretly, silently, and yet in the end, they have the ability to permeate everything. And so Jesus, again, he's sharing this parable with his disciples because he's very aware how people are responding to his ministry, and he knows how people will in the future respond to his disciples' ministry. And so he's wanting to prepare him, prepare them. Uh, they're being called to proclaim a, a message that, for the most part, the world is going to reject. The King God, in light of it, if they look at, okay, success for the kingdom of God, and they look at how people respond to it to evaluate the success of God's kingdom, they're going to be disappointed all the time. And don't get me wrong, they're going to have some good days. I mean, Pentecost, they see thousands of people come to Christ, but they ought not look at that as the norm. That's the exception. The norm will be either rejection or dismissal, apathy. And in fact, we should be amazed that Christianity made it out of the, the first century. I mean, Christians back then in the first century, they were thought of as part of a cult of Judaism. The Jews hated them. The, the Roman Empire hated them. They were facing persecution from both sides. And their message, like today, is not a popular one. Um, I mean, pay attention to how people respond to Kanye West over the next few weeks. Okay, And whether you agree with him or don't agree with him, just pay attention to how they respond as he's claiming to become a Christian. They're going to be brutal. You've probably already seen it if you've looked at anything online. It is not a popular message to say, repent of your sins. You need to change your life and turn towards God. That's not a popular message today. It wasn't a popular message back then. You're trying to convince people that God came to earth as a human, died and rose from the dead. That's a difficult message, and many people are going to reject it. We should, be, we should expect that. That's why it's the power of God that has to change people's hearts. We are just the messengers. God is the one that has to convince them. That's, and that's true of all of us. I mean, I, I can remember a day where, I mean, for many years, I mean, I, I grew up in a church, and the church was extremely boring to me, but there was a day where God finally got a hold of my heart. And instead of sitting through the sermon, just begging for it to be over, I began to listen and pay attention and take notes because I recognized that, okay, this is God's word and significant to me. It's life-changing for me. And that the power of God has to work in us for that to happen. And so we proclaim a message that's not going to be popular, but we should be amazed that by 350 AD, there were roughly 30 million believers. I mean, that, that's only by the power of God that that happens. Uh, today, there are 
around 2 billion that claim Christ. That is only by the power of God. And so history has proven that the kingdom is going forth, that it will grow. It started, yes, as a small mustard seed, but it's going to grow into a tree like, like a tree that can hold a, a nest. But there's no way for the disciples to be able to see the big picture. They're not, they're not going to live long enough. And Jesus recognizes that. And the truth is we won't either. We, we won't live long enough unless Christ comes back in the near future. We're not going to live long enough to see the full impact that Mercy Hill has on our world. And so we need to trust God that this is part of his plan. Jesus cares very much how we respond to a world that is bent on rejecting his message. He doesn't want us to be discouraged. And this is why. When we're discouraged about how people are responding to the gospel message, it often causes us to go in two negative directions. Either A, we, we're discouraged and we see it and we just, we have this fear that paralyzes us. And that has infected many churches and it, and it kills the church. Unfortunately, we, we have seen, we're going through a season right now here in America where literally thousands of churches close their doors every single year because they're paralyzed with fear about sharing the gospel. Now, on the flip side of that, there's another response that I think is just as bad when we're discouraged about the gospel message being rejected. What do we do? We, we're tempted to change the message, to make it more acceptable, to make it more attractive, more palatable. And this is nothing new. Back in the first century, the Apostle Paul addresses the Galatians, warning them to not preach a different gospel. He warns Timothy, uh, for the time is coming when people will not endure a sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so from the very beginning, there's been this temptation to change the gospel message to make it a, more appealing to other people. Uh, a couple hundred years ago, it was during the German Enlightenment that there was this theologian, Frederick uh, Schleiermacher, he observed, he's got a funny name, I know. Uh, <laughs> he, he observed these intellectual elites. All that they were the message of the gospel, they thought it was unbelievable. And so he goes and he presents these, uh, uh, a series of messages, lectures, entitled On Christianity to Its Culture Despisers. And in these lectures, he attempts to adapt the gospel message in order to make it more palatable and attractive to his culture. Now listen, his goal was not to destroy Christianity. His goal in his head was to save Christianity. But today, he is known as the father of theological liberalism. And the impact that he has, or he had, it's easy to see now. I mean, how many churches today have rejected the atonement of Christ or the authority of the Bible? They've rejected the exclusivity of the gospel or even the reality of hell or miracles. And today, 200 years later, progressive Christianity goes even further than the liberal theology that he held. In fact, progressive Christianity, they claim to be post-liberal. They've denied any kind of absolutes. They reject all absolutes. They're, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. 
They've embraced relativism. They, they, they believe that your feelings are more important than facts. Sin is a bad word. The bloody cross is grotesque to them. And so Jesus didn't die for our sins, they believe. Jesus died simply because he was a threat to the current power structures. And again, their goal is not to destroy Christianity. Their goal is to try to save it. But in reality, they're pulling the rug out from under it because they're changing the message. And they end up worshiping a, a God that they're creating out of their own minds. Now, I don't think Mercy Hill, I, I, I don't feel like Mercy Hill is going to go down that path of progressive Christianity. But if we're not careful, we too can be discouraged by the rejection of the message of the gospel and be tempted to say things like, you know what, we really need to, to change how we're doing church if we're going to make it acceptable and palatable to our culture. And, and don't get me wrong, I think the church should speak the language of the culture. That's why we use a modern translation of the Bible here. But we need to be careful that we don't adopt a strategy that compromises or water down, waters down the message of the gospel. Too often in our day, there are churches who have a huge heart for the lost. They want to see the lost come to know Christ. But in doing that, they've abandoned solid biblical preaching and teaching because they think that the culture is going to look at that as boring and irrelevant to them. And so instead, they focus on entertaining and wowing the crowd, trying to draw the crowd. And so they, hit, they want to make things exciting. They want, to, they want to show people that there's immediate, uh, some kind of immediate revel relevance to them. And so they don't want to preach the Bible because that's going to be boring. And then we're surprised why so many people in church don't know how to read the Bible, don't understand it. Uh, recently, I heard a, a preacher talking to church planners, and he, he said, look, when, when things get difficult, don't run towards strategy. Run towards Christ. Oh, that is so true. That is such a, that's a message that I need, to be, I need to hear over and over. See, Christ's message in these parables to his disciples is, look, trust me. I've got this. You don't need to be awesome. You just need to be faithful. You don't need, to, you don't need everybody to love you. You don't need to be flashy. You don't need to be entertaining. You simply need to know to follow my lead, to preach the good news of the gospel no matter what. Be humble. Be patient. Trust me. The church will not fail. He told Peter that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so let's make this personal because that is also true with the kingdom of God in your own hearts. Like a mustard seed, God rule, his rule and his reign is going to grow in your heart. If you're a believer, if you've trusted in him and the, the spirit is inside of you, it's going to grow. The kingdom of God will grow in your heart. And, and for, that means the, the seemingly insignificant and small changes that you for some of you just sitting here this morning is proof that God is working in your heart. And so be humble, be patient, trust the Lord. He is working. Philippians 1.6, be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is working in you. 
He will not drop you. He will continue to change you and grow his kingdom in your heart. These parables also remind us that the, the small things we do for the kingdom, they matter. When you vacuum the rugs or clean the restrooms or prepare communion, when you open the door for a visitor and welcome them in or invite a visitor to come and sit next to, to you or, or you skip Starbucks to be able to, be able to give a little bit more, those small acts of service or, or obedience, they really do matter. And if you think about the whole storyline of the Bible, we ought not be surprised that God uses small, seemingly insignificant people and things to accomplish his will. Abraham was a nobody when God picked him out. He was a pagan worshiper. God picks him to be the father of a great nation. Moses was a murderer who had run away from his people. David was a forgotten shepherd boy. Jesus, when he came, he didn't come with any flair or excitement. came quietly, humbly, born in a manger, homeless, poor, died on a, on a cross, had very few followers, if you think about it. And many of his followers were ordinary like fishermen, even tax collectors. These disciples were hated by everyone. And Judea was like a, an afterthought where he lived in the vast Roman Empire. He was a nobody in a no place. And yet it was through this small group of ordinary men and women that God flipped the world upside down. God loves to use seemingly small and insignificant people to accomplish his will. Because in the end, that's going to cause us to just be in awe of what God has done. This is what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Listen to this. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. God loves to use the small and the weak and the seemingly insignificant people of this world to accomplish his will because his glory is amplified when he does that. If Mercy Hill or Mark 12 is going to do anything significant for the kingdom of God, it's not going to be because of our strategies that we've come up with this grand plan. It's going to be because of God working through us and in us. Because the question is not, will God build his kingdom? The question is, will he allow us to be a part of that, to play a part of building his kingdom? To be a part of bringing people from the darkness to the light, from death to life. I mean, it, it should blow us away that God has chosen us to be a part of that plan. And so don't buy into the lie that you're too weak or you're too young or you're too dumb or you're, you're, you're too small 
insignificant for God to use you in amazing ways. He has called us, every single one of us, to work in the little things, to do the little things, and that's what's going to turn the world upside down. John Calvin has, I love this quote. He said, it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. And we do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, and even in our checkbooks. Because God, Christ is over every one of spheres of life. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. And so let's be a church that embraces the the smallness and the, the seemingly insignificance of the church with a whole lot of humility and a whole lot of patience. Let's trust Christ, that he is building his kingdom. Let's be a church that seeks to be faithful rather than flashy. Let's be a church that is earnest about praying that God would allow us to be a part of his kingdom being brought forth, that we would pray earnestly that God would help us to be unashamed of the gospel, knowing that it is the power of God for the salvation of men. And that we would unashamedly proclaim that gospel truth no matter what the costs, no matter how rejected we are because of it. And so let's pray right now that God would instill that type of courage in us. Father, would you help us have the courage to tell others about what you have done in our lives, that you have saved us from hell and from God's wrath, I pray that our hearts would be transformed, that we would fully embrace your love towards us and that we would extend that love towards others and that we would embrace the rejection knowing that you were rejected on the cross for us so that we could be accepted by God. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.